Welcome to Collected Talks of David Solomon, podcasts on Jewish history, the Bible, Jewish mysticism, philosophy, and thought. Find out more about David's upcoming classes, publications, and other recorded lectures by visiting davidsolomon.online. And now, here's the lecture. Welcome to the fourth lecture in this overview series of Jewish history. Uh, brought uh, to you and sponsored by Chabad South Africa and by Dominion Shul in Melbourne, the Shul of Love. And we are indeed uh, up to number four. I'm not going to spend too much time at the moment uh, preliminizing this. You all know the format, but just to contextualize and remind ourselves where we are up to. And welcome, of course, to our esteemed studio audience that are here. And, the, and they would know, as do you, that we are dealing with the entire span of Jewish history, which using secular dating, we're calling 4,000 years from minus 2,000 to 2,000. There's zero. There's, we'll put in the thousands. And then we can put in some 500s. And as we can see, and as we have discussed, Jewish history is divisible into these 500-year blocks, each of which carries with it a unique spiritual project. And if we understand the unique spiritual project of each 500-year block, then the details can all make sense when uh, placed in that context. But uh, therefore, the aim of this series is really to go over what are the things that we would know about to make sense of each of those 500-year blocks. Now, in the very first lecture, as you would recall, I didn't start here. I started with this period here. And what do we call that period? Roughly minus 500 to zero. We call it Bayit Sheini. We call it the second temple period or Bayit Sheini. And then in this period here, zero to 500, uh, which we did in the second week, and we call that period we don't call it Gemara, we call it the Talmudic, where we see the development of the Gemara as one of the things that emerges from the Talmudic. And then 500 to 1000, which was last week's talk, we looked at the period called the Gaonic. And all of these 500 year periods are extremely important in understanding the mechanics of Jewish history. Tonight, we're obviously going to look at uh, this period here from 1,000, what's a good color for that? Um, black. 1,000 to 1,500. And we call that period, now all of these periods, Second Temple, Talmudic, Gaonic, are pretty much the same names that would be used whichever perspective of Jewish history you're in, whether you're in a religious framework or a more academic framework, they would all use these terms for these 500-year periods and any conversation in that would make sense. Once we get to this period here, we have a name for it that everybody understands, and that is the period which we know as the period, and which we're going to refer to it, as the period of the Rishonim. The Rishonim means the first ones. Oh, thank you. And we're going to explain that term, what it means, the first ones. Obviously, they're not the first ones. They didn't come here. But they are the first ones in relation to us. And we're going to unpack that term. And that's what it's known 
certainly in any religious discussion on Jewish history, anytime you refer to the period of the Rishonim, you're referring to roughly that 500-year period. But you should know, of course, that in academic discourse, whilst the period of the Rishonim would be understood, they would refer to it more commonly as the Middle Ages or medieval times. But we're going to refer to it as the period of the Rishonim because we're trying to understand the key uh, spiritual uh, uh, project and the key cultural push, really, from within the centre of the Jewish world and what helps us explain Jewish history going forward. Now, having contextualised that, and I know you're all familiar with that, we're now going to zoom in on the period of the Rishonim, on the period from roughly 1000 to roughly 1500. This is an enormously complex period. And I once again remind us that when we cover it in the next little while, we are covering it literally in a historical jet ski. We can't go into the details of so much. There are, I have given separately entire lecture series on basically each of the components of this period. And sometimes even on entire topics within this period. So it's something that I have to work very hard to be able to stand back from to give an overview. But an overview is what we're going to do. And I'm going to try and talk about the things that, not only the things that you really need to have heard about to understand this period, but something that will give us an insight into how this period drives us forward in Jewish history. But in order to do that, I need to do something that, if you're not paying attention now, will be confusing for you. As soon as I explain this, you can go back to sleep, but I need you to follow what I'm going to do so you're not confused. By the time we get to the year 1000, there is no real centre of the Jewish world. Not like there was in Babylonia for the last 500 years, and not like there was in the periods before that in the Second Temple and so on. In the Talmudic and the, Babylon and the, and the Gaonic, it was Babylonia for the most part. Before that, it was the land of Israel. They were definitive centres of the Jewish world. We don't really have a centre now. We have large and dynamic communities, but we don't have an official centre. And what that means is it's hard to track a continuous narrative of Jewish history across this period. So here's what I'm going to do for this talk. I'm going to start by drawing three timelines. Oh yes, can you believe he's doing this? Three timelines. And those three timelines are going to take us from... Actually, I'll make them a bit longer. Because otherwise, people will complain they don't fit in. Each of these timelines goes from the year 1000 to 1300. 1000 to 1300. 1000 to 1300. Because I'm going to be looking at Jewish history of this period, this 300 year period here, focused on three different domains, because it's impossible for us to talk about them all at once. 
But when we finish with that, we're going to be able to stand back from the board and see the relationship of things and people and events. We're going to be able to say, oh, that was happening while that was happening. And then when I have completed all three timelines up to the year 1300, I'm then going to do another timeline going from 1300 to 1500 because we can kind of talk about a coherent narrative again for a while happening there. Does everybody follow that? And I'm assuming that if everybody's nodding their head that they follow that in the studio audience, then it's not going to be too challenging for you out there. Good. Now, I'm going to call this timeline here Western Europe. W-E, Western Europe. When I say Western Europe, I'm talking predominantly about the area of Europe that's going to eventually become France and Germany. That is the rise. Here is we're going to see the real rise of Ashkenazic Jewry. And it's going to have its own unique challenges and its own unique events and personalities. And that's going to arise here in Western Europe. On the second timeline, I'm going to be talking about Spain. Because Spain, certainly by the opening of this era, is the largest and most impressive Jewish community in the world. And it has its own series of events and personalities that are going to drive Jewish history forward on that timeline at the same time that things are going on here. And then I'll explain what that third timeline is going to be when we get to it. But let's start here. And the reason I'm going to Western Europe first is because we're going to start off with a figure that we ended on last week. If you recall last week when we discussed the Gonic period, we talked about the first great rabbi to arrive in Western Europe, which was Rabbeinu Gershom, and that he established the first Yeshiva Torah Academy in Mainz, the first Torah Academy in Germany, and the greatest product of that soon came along afterwards, and that was Rashi. So Rashi's life is here, and of course, Rashi's name wasn't Rashi, wasn't Rabbi Rashi, it was Rabbi Shlomo Yitzchaki, a lot of revision, a lot of historical revision on Rashi recently. We know that uh, there are discussions about whether or not we have this idyllic picture of him running through the vineyards in, in France, in Burgundy over there, creating his own vintage champagnes and so on. Not necessarily the case. He may simply have sold a bit of wine at some point, but we certainly he wouldn't, From we know from Rashi's own output that if he was a merchant of wine or growing his own vineyards or whatever, he wouldn't have had a lot of time to do it, as we imagine, because his literary product was so phenomenal. And to understand what Rashi is doing uh, <laughs> is to understand that this entire period, as it has been already from the end of the Garnic period, is trying to derive from the Talmud this ocean of Jewish law and custom and way of life and all things theological and practical that is contained in the Talmud to try and derive from there what we're actually supposed to do. In other words, what is the halakha in any given situation? The Talmud doesn't tell you. The Talmud is a record of discussions. 
and it doesn't tell you what you're actually meant to do in any given situation at the end of the day. That's left up to you to work out or for you, up to your rabbi to tell you. But now, given that there's no center of the Jewish world, what we're seeking are definitive codes of behavior drawn from the Talmud. That does not yet explain Rashi's contribution because Rashi's contribution is even more foundational than that. I can't even study these texts unless I know what they mean. I need to know what they're saying. And they're extremely complex, difficult texts. Anyone who studied the Talmud would tell you it's written in its own cryptic code. It has been said with some validity that if one generation since the Talmud, if one generation of the Jewish world had forgotten how to read the Talmud, we never would have been able to pick it up again. Rashi's work of commentary on the Talmud to explain its punctuation, to explain the meaning of words, to explain its basic logic, just on the level of the surface reading, is an incalculably immense contribution to Jewish culture and way of life and helps drive this whole period forward. And of course, Rashi didn't just commentate on the Talmud, he of course famously commentated on the Bible as well, and basically gave the Jewish world its definition of what we call today pshat, of what we call the basic understanding within the Jewish world of what this text means, whether we are looking at the Bible, whether we're looking at the Torah, the Tanakh, or whether we're looking at the Talmud itself. What does this basically mean before we launch off onto any didactic analysis or we launch off into any derivation of the Halakha? What does it mean? So Rashi's contribution is immense. We could give an entire talk on who Rashi was and how he did that and why he did that. But for our purpose to today, it's going to be important just to understand that he sits right there. And he doesn't just <laughs> do this on his own in the sense that he launches an entire project of commentary that is going to continue with his school and his descendants that's going to go on for the next couple of hundred years. His grandsons are going to go on and become the next generation of commentators, the famous Ba'alei Tosafot, those who were the, at the heart of the super commentary on Rashi, that is still a discussion on Pshat. It's still a discussion on the basic meaning of the Talmud, but they take it, take it further and compare Rashi's notes with other parts of the Talmud and with other things that they know. And that became, in a sense, an entire commentative movement, an intellectual project of Western European Jewry that carries on for the next couple of centuries. And that's important to know. We need to park that information for a moment, but it is going to come back, and it is important to know that that is all going on in the background. Interestingly enough, not overly, uh, a fact not overly uh, aware by, uh, by those who, who study history, is that, of course, that project of textual analysis and commentary is a reflection of what's going on in Europe in a wider sense particularly in the Christian church, with the way that they were looking at their core texts and attempting to penetrate them with intellectual analysis and commentary and so on. There is a rise in this period of what we would call scholasticism. But we're going to come back to that in a bit. What I want to do now, before we move on from Rashi, on this line, 
And I could have done this before Rashi, but I'm going to do it now. Because I wanted to do Rashi, because we ended with Rashi last week, so I thought it was nice to start with him. But there's some important things you need to know about what's going on in Western Europe that background this entire period. Not What I'm going to talk about now does not belong to one isolated time frame, but it backgrounds this entire period. And it's something we all learnt at school. But I'm going to remind us. And that is, throughout this period, the unique culture of Christian Europe was developing socially and economically along lines that we now call feudal. There was a very pronounced feudal system emerging in Europe. And just to remind us what that means, what is the feudal system? For those of us who uh, did year nine not so recently, the feudal system is basically a pyramid. And at the top of the pyramid, you've got the king, the ruling monarch. And just under him, of course, are his noble family. All the dukes, duchesses, barons, earls, counts, viscounts, lords, and other assorted nobility are all sitting at the top of the pyramid, and things are not bad for them. Next, you're going to have a whole series of <coughs> knights, Yep, knights and squires and, you know, a whole official kind of informal and formal militia that are wandering around the place that are recognised by the crown and that they're the ones that go to war. And when they're not going to war, they're being chivalrous to women and all sorts of things that they're doing there and they're practising fighting. And they're kind of like a, a very, very respected warrior class. You're going to have a class of... Uh, merchants and journeymen and craftsmen and artisans and all sorts of people who are respected within this society but they don't have any special titles or privileges outside of the fact that they have unique talents and unique professions and that they have certain amounts of rights and so on uh, some of them we don't really have a middle class yet but some of these might even be owning a little bit of land which they might lease from the king and so on and underneath that, you're going to have, and some of the, some of the, uh, so there is some merging of, of this class with, with the lower nobility in terms of barons and lords and so on. And then you're going to have an entire class here of peasants. And many of those are going to become serfs, meaning that they are indebted to the higher classes for the land that they work, and they're eking out a miserable existence among the turnips. Uh, and then they die, and then the next generation does the same thing. They're basically subsistence living, uh, but they are supporting all of this massive uh, pyramid infrastructure. They are the ones who are doing the work. Then underneath this pyramid, <coughs> or hierarchy, really, of human beings in Western Europe, and I know that some of you are thinking, oh, what about the church? The church is a completely parallel structure we'll look at in a second. But underneath this structure, once you go through all the humans, then you have a hierarchy of animals. So at the top of the animals, where there are no real lions in Europe, so there's the king of the animals, but at the top of the animals is going to be the horse. Because the horse is a noble animal, the king rides a horse, the horse, if you have a horse, you're doing well, you know, a horse. 
So a horse is sitting at the top of the hierarchy of animals, and then you'd probably have cows, and then sheep, and then it goes all the way down the hierarchy of animals until you get basically to jukim, to cockroaches. And then underneath the cockroaches were the Jews. It is no exaggeration to say that for much of the Middle Ages, Jews were regarded by a vast majority of the European population as something a bit less than human. We were something else. We were clever, but we were also dangerous. We were exotic. We were wrong. We were the Antichrist. We were the source of much of their troubles and evils. And we had some serious, not only theological problems, but also we're starting to see the rise of a kind of a racial anti-Semitism. This entire period, and I'm not going to spend too much on this, because anyone who studied this period knows this. It backgrounds everything. But the whole of the Middle Ages, in many ways, is just one anti-Semitic persecution after another in Western Europe. There are persecutions and there are summary expulsions and summary taxations and book burnings and blood libels and forced disputes and forced conversions and more massacres. It's bewildering sometimes when you read this period and you see just how much anti-Semitism became ingrained. And astonishingly so, when we looked last week at how around the year 800, it could have it held such promise for a bright future, our sojourn in Christian countries through the Middle Ages, but it didn't happen that way. <laughs> there were bright spots. And those of us who've looked at this in great detail will see that it's not as monolithic as we think. But when we step back, all we're seeing is just this entire period of history covered in Jewish blood. But I want to come back to Rashi because it is towards the end of Rashi's life that really we need to talk about yet one more background issue to do with Western Europe that really is going to help us explain everything to some extent. It's one of the keys to understanding and that is Famously, I don't think I'm going to be telling you anything you don't know. I'm just putting it in perspective for us. And that is that from here, you see, in 1095, the Pope, who was Urban II, Urban, got up and decreed that Western Europe was going to set out on effectively a jihad, even though I've borrowed that term from a completely different discourse, a holy war to recapture the Holy Land, the land of Israel, away from Islam and bring it back into the control of Western Christendom. This project, and they didn't know at the time just how long and how difficult and how useless this would be, but this project was known as the Crusade. Obviously, it wasn't then known as the First Crusade. They didn't know it was the first of what was going to be several. Right throughout this period, the Crusades are a project that go from the 1190, from the 1090s, sorry, right up to the 1290s, by which time most historians would say it more or less ends. 
And there are several waves of crusades. There are several waves of crusades. And there are, according to, depends which historians you talk to. Some would say there are six. Some would say there are up to 12. There's different views on just how many distinct waves of crusades there were. For our purposes, for Jewish history, the ones that are probably the most impactful, and some could argue against this, but I would suggest the ones that are most impactful for Jewish history would probably be the first and the third. But the first crusade set off from Europe to recapture the Holy Land in 1095, in 1096, about a year after Urban called for the crusade. And as we all know, the crusaders' first job was to say to themselves, ah, oh, we don't have to go all the way to the Holy Land to kill the enemies of Christianity. We've got them right here. And we see more or less for about the first time, the first full-blown expression of Christian anti-Semitism in that the first Crusades, before they even left Germany, wiped out all the Jewish communities in the Rhineland. Tens of thousands of Jews died in an event that was known for a long, long time. Just as we talk about the Shoah, they talked about this event as the Akedah, The binding, an event that shook European Jewry to its core because they realized that there were so many pent-up energies of hate that could be released at a moment like this. And of course, it was Godfrey of Bouillon, Rashi's, a neighbor of Rashi, who led that crusade, and that crusade, and we'll talk about this a bit later, but that crusade, of course, by the time you get to three years later, 1099, arrived in Jerusalem <coughs> and captured it and massacred everyone. They massacred all the Jews of Jerusalem because they massacred everyone when they got there. And they set up the Latinate kingdom of Jerusalem. This story of the crusades is a background issue for this entire period. But I want to come back to things that are a little bit more positive. Uh, it's inescapable uh, to what, what is happening in Western Europe in terms of the church. Because the church, the Christian church, which has, as I said, its own hierarchy. So at the top is the Pope, and then you're going to have cardinals, bishops, uh, and uh, pre labor priests and also all the way down. So if, for example, you know, you had a, uh, you had a son, you were a, a noble or you had a son, then your eldest son was going to go into, uh, was going to inherit your land. Yep. A second son might go and become a knight and a third son might go in, uh, into the church and become a priest and seek his fortune within that hierarchy. <coughs> now, the church has a very, very complex relationship with the Jews throughout the Middle Ages. Uh, there is a constant struggle and tension, of course, between the king of the kings of various places and the Pope who sat in Rome. And outcomes about Jews and what Jews are allowed to do and where Jews can live and what's the theological position of Jews is constantly... Uh, under consideration and of course 
the famous thing about this period is that Jewish freedoms and Jewish economic liberties were constantly being reduced to the point where we were basically in many places only really allowed to do one thing. And that one thing was to deal with money and to lend it at interest. Because Christians, being from, couldn't lend each other money. You need Jews to do that. And Jews are happy to do that because that's what Jews do. And Jews represent that entire awful thing about having to lend money to keep an economy going. And we don't really want to know about it until we find ourselves too much in debt to them. And then we are, what we're going to do is we're either going to expel them and confiscate all the assets that they've built up, or we might just kill them and build up, take out all the assets that they have built up and expunge all their debts and so on and release that pressure valve. If we don't release that pressure valve, what happens, and did happen in many cases, is that the lower orders of this society would find that they needed to outlet their pent-up aggression, the higher orders would owe us too much money, and the Jewish people would be caught in that sandwich, and it never ever bode well. That picture is also going on in the background. But the church is also at this age of scholasticism, where Western philosophy is starting to invade Europe. Philosophy that has come in from the Arab world who preserved the old world philosophy. And we looked last week at someone like Sa'ad Jaga'on, who already hundreds of years ahead of his time, as was the Islamic world anyway, who were trying to combine Abrahamic revelations with Aristotle and Plato. That project is starting to happen inside the church. And so the church itself is getting very, very repressive on even Christian thinkers who are trying to reconcile all those different ideas. And that, of course, spills out onto their investigation of what are the Jews doing. And once again, that old question of why are we tolerating these people again who are wandering around knowing that they killed Christ and we just let them live here? And pressure grew within the church to create a homogeny of ideas in Europe. And you can't do that when you've got Jews who think what they want to think. So what we're going to do is we are actually going to go on a concerted project of intellectual challenge with the Jews. And we are going to make them debate us because it will become soon very apparent, very apparent, that Christ is the truth. And they will see that. All we need to do is either go into their synagogues and give them forced converts, first sermons. So you'd be sitting there on a Shabbos morning, just about to dove in Musaf, and in would walk the priest, and he'd give a drosha, literally, and there's nothing you could do about it. Or we will say to any town or city, next Tuesday, we will be, the, the bishop will come along and he will be debating someone and you've got to choose someone to debate them. Now that's a, that's, that's a trope, that's a pattern, and there are many debates throughout the Middle Ages, but for our purposes, if you're sitting around talking about 
middle-aged polemics, Christian-Jewish polemics, then there are three debates you would need to know about. And we'll, I'll show you where those three occur. But three famous, famous debates. But the first one you'd probably need to know about is this is 1100, so we're going to call this 1200. It's probably going to be here 1240, and that is the famous debate in... No, it's not. It's not yet. No, no, no. no. I, I hear you. I hear you. That's going to be, that's going to be number two. But we're going to... We'll start... Sorry? It'll be in Spain. Yeah. This one here is in Paris. Uh, and most of these debates were triggered by uh, Jews who had converted to Christianity. And this famous one in Paris, the re we can't go into too much detail against Nicholas Donin, but the real outcome of it was that they ended up <coughs> burning uh, 24 cartloads of manuscripts of the Talmud, every single copy of the Talmud in France was burnt in Paris because it was troubling the Christians the fact that every time they argued with the Jews about the truth of the Bible the Jews would be saying oh that's not how we understand the Bible we understand the Bible according to the way we've been taught in the Talmud which is older than Christianity, and has, it contains teachings that are older than Christianity. Well, that's how we understand the Bible. So the response of the church was to burn the Talmud. And those are significant. That is a that 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 that, that is a significant moment uh, in Jewish history. The, the burning of the Talmud in Paris has implications beyond this timeline. I mean, we're also talking about the fact that only a few years before they had burnt the writings of the Rambam as well. And there, there's all sorts of massive implications to do with that. But I want to get back to, I want to, I want to stay on this timeline and I'm, I want to go to here, uh, to uh, the end of the 1200s. Um, I've given a tremendous summary of this timeline, but I'm trying to give you an idea of the challenges that were facing the Jewish world coming from all different directions. And by the time we get to the end of the 1200s, what we can see in Western Europe is that the Ba'alei Tosafot, this incredible school of commentary that has, was uh, initiated by Rashi, has continued for the last 200 years and has produced incredible sages who are now really, really starting to apply their work to halakhic decisions and so on. And the towering figure of this period in Germany probably the last, really, of the Ba'ale Tosafot, as we would know them. The word Tosafot means additions. So although much of their thinking and writing was highly original, we consider them as kind of like an extension of Rashi's project. But the towering figure here was Rabbi Meir of Rothenberg, a figure that really probably needs his own lecture. But uh, not only a, an immensely learned individual, the greatest rabbi in Europe, but a, a very saintly and holy individual as well. And in, as, a, as an aged rabbi, the spiritual leader of German Jewry, in the 1290s, the emperor wakes up one day and decides that he's just going to lock him in jail, kidnap him, and demand an enormous ransom from the Jews of Europe. And what ransom would the Jews of Europe not pay 
to get their greatest spiritual sage back. But he refused to allow them to release him. He refused to allow the Jewish communities of Europe to raise money on his behalf because he said, if I let you do that, then the Christian authorities will just think it's open season on Jews and will kidnap for ransom Jewish leaders any time they feel like it. So I refuse to allow myself to be ransomed in this manner. And he died in jail. In fact, it took years and years later before they were even able to ransom back his body. It's one of the most tragic and horrendous episodes of this entire period is the death of Rabbi Meir Rottenberg in prison. His greatest student, this is important, his greatest student, of course, was oh, Rabbi Asher ben Yechiel, who we know as the Rosh, the acronym, the acronym. Now, the Rosh saw all that and was so disgusted by it, and the Rosh himself is an immense figure in European Jewry because he's really now the first of those who are turning the corner from simply commentating on the Talmud to establishing and deriving from the Talmud a code of behavior of, okay, these are the discussions. This is the end point. This is the halakha based on this discussion. And he's starting to extract that as a proto-code. But he is so disgusted by what has happened to his teacher that he picks himself up from the center of the Ashkenazic world of Germany at the end of the 1200s and he migrates to Spain. He migrates to the heart of the Sephardic world. That's an astonishing moment. And of course... The Rosh doesn't migrate from here to here. He migrates from here. Well, no, sorry. He doesn't migrate from here to here. He migrates from here to here. But in order to get to here, we now have to go to Spain. And we have to talk about Spain. And I realize that I've, my time's a little out. So I'm only going to be able to give myself maybe eight to ten minutes just to talk about... <laughs> <laughs> Spain, Jewish Spain of 1000 to 1300. And what we'll do is we'll do it like this. Uh, as you would know, because I mentioned it last week, by the time we open this 300 period, year period in Spain, we are really smack in what has become known as the golden age of Spain. Cordovan Caliphate, which is about to fall apart, but Cordovan Caliphate and, the, and, and Jews in all positions of government and the economy and the arts and science and everything. Jews are having a fantastic time, but they're also developing, starting to develop as scholars in their own right. And they're also making uh, huge uh, contributions in poetry and so on. Probably the greatest poet of, and we talked about Shmuel Hanagid last week. He really belongs in this period. And the greatest poet uh, of that phase of the golden age of Spain is... Not Shalom Aleichem. No, 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 no. You're still hundreds of years out. I know who you mean. I know who you mean, and you know who you mean. Shlomo Ibn Gabirol. Now, Shlomo Ibn Gabirol wasn't just a poet. 
Shlomo Ibn Gavirol was soaked in the immensely philosophically informed culture of the Golden Age of Spain and wrote possibly the most profound book of Neoplatonism, the Makor Chayim, the source of life, the Fons Vitae, that was so influential on Christian thought for the next seven, eight hundred years that they didn't even realize till the 19th century that it was in fact written by a Jew called Shlomo Ibn Gvirol. They thought it was written by some just anonymous Christian Neoplatonist. But it is a phenomenally universally powerful book about the relationship between the divine and the world and so on. We would be discussing, we discussed that in, uh, in other talks on philosophy. Uh, and, uh, but for all of these impressive projects, and as I said, Shmuel Hanagid and so on, amazing time in Spain, uh, what puts a Jewish community on the map? What puts a Jewish community on the map? At the end of the day, for Jewish history, Torah scholarship. And to have Torah scholarship, you need, at that level, to be on the Jewish history map, you need sages at the highest possible levels who are opening schools in which they teach at the highest possible levels. And Spain got its first one of those towards the end of the 10, in the 1070s, in the 1080s, when a very, very great sage who had been living in North Africa, made his way into Spain. And that, of course, was... Oh, could you see? I like it when they don't know because then there's a reason for being here. This is immense. This is really important. And that, of course, is Rabbi Yitzchak Alfazi, who we know as the Riff. The Rif comes to Spain and the Rif establishes <coughs> the first Torah Academy in Lucena. And that's an important moment for Spanish Jewry. And it's a decisive moment for Spanish Jewry going forward, as we will see. But I need now to background the Spanish line because I need to tell you some things about the mechanics of history in the Spanish line and what are going on, out of which we make sense of this whole thing. So I'm going to just step back a moment, show you something about the Spanish line so that we can come back into it. So don't get confused. But the golden age of Spain is all humming along very well until around the 1080s. In the 1080s, what we start to see in the 1080s is the beginning of the first Reconquista. That is the attempt by Christian Europe, this line here, to retake Spain in the name of Christianity. Many, I haven't drawn the map tonight because there's no room, but many people don't realize that really the Crusades is being fought out on both sides of the Mediterranean. In the land of, between Christianity and Islam, in the land of Israel on one side and Spain on the other. At times, one was up, one was down. And when one was up, the other was down. In the end, Spain was going to end up in the hands of Christianity and the land of Israel was going to end up in the hands of Islam. But for this entire period, that seesaw was happening. The first Reconquista goes up to here. And then in 1148, that very, very important year of 1148, 
saw the invasion of Spain by the Almohads, who were a very oppressive Talibanic type of Islam that came through and put an end to the good times. And over the next century, what we see is the second Reconquista. That's the first Reconquista, the attempt to reconquer Spain for Christianity. That's the second Reconquista. And understanding that explains so much of Jewish history of what is going on in that period. By the time we get to the middle of the 1200s, once we get to James of Aragon and people like that, Spain is definitively Christian. But it was a struggle right throughout this period. One individual whose life really spans that struggle, say between the beginning of the first Reconquista and the Almohad invasion, is the greatest poet of that era, who is, of course, Yehuda Halevi. And Yehuda Halevi's poems are filled with this realization of this struggle over Spain between these two great ideologies of Christianity and Islam. And that the Jews, while comfortable in Spain, it's not really their place. Says Yehuda Halevi, I am in the West, but my heart is in the East because he's trying to remind us of a yearning that the Jewish people have, however good it is in these amazing countries. What this conflict is showing me, says Yehuda Halevi, is that we, don't really, shouldn't, we really shouldn't be here. We should have our own land and be accessing our own level of spirituality, which is accessed through through prophecy and so on of the Jewish people in the land of Israel in order to restore balance, the spiritual balance in the world. It is no coincidence, therefore, that it is a figure like Yehud HaLevi who sits right here who is most famous for having written the book called The Kuzari. Because in The Kuzari, that's which was based on, remember I spoke last week about that romantic idea of that letter that was received by Chazda ibn Shaprut from the king of the Khazars. 200 years later, Yehuda Halevi takes that idea and he turns it into a fantastic vehicle to express this theological vision about the Jewish people and their true purpose in the world through the means of a debate between a king and a Muslim and a Christian and a philosopher. All of those are, and a Jew, all of those are emblematic of the great intellectual as well as, well as physical turmoil, political turmoil that is going on in that period. However, obviously once you understand that, you understand why the greatest product of the greatest product of the golden age of Spain never got to enjoy the golden age of Spain for very long at all because the Almohads came through in the year of his bar mitzvah. And that, of course, is the astonishingly large figure of the Rambam. Now, his name wasn't Rambam. It's Moshe ben Maimon, of course. And... Uh, I don't need to tell anybody here or anybody listening at home or wherever you might be that we could spend several lectures just talking about the Rambam. So I'm going to have to spend 
a minute and a half to two minutes to give us a picture of why the figure of the Rambam towers over this whole period. And the way I normally do that is by the following, and that is, imagine a family that has a son that goes on to become the greatest rabbi in the world. All right? Let's just imagine that. Is that nachas for the family? That's very nice nachas. And in fact, and it all, we, we can link it all together, because the Rambam's father, Moshe ben Maimon, so his father's name was Maimon, and that's why he's Maimonides. Maimon was a student of Rabbi Yosef ibn Migash, well, his fa- Rambam's father, Maimon, was the chief judge of Cordova. And his own teacher had been Rabbi Yosef ibn Migash, who had been a direct student of the Rif. So that entire chain of transmission comes down to him. And he is very brilliant, young Moshe. And he grows up and he becomes eventually, he writes, he writes a commentary on the Mishnah in his 20, like an enormously influential commentary on the Mishnah. He writes a one-stop, phenomenal reference of the entire oral Torah. He writes the ultimate code of the Middle Ages. Yep, the Mishnah Torah, the Yad Chazakah, in which he not just extracts all of the halachic opinions like the Rif had done and the Rosh had done, but he lays it all out for you in topical form. He creates an absolute encyclopedic guide on all facets of Jewish life and performance. Criticised because he didn't really put his sources there, and there was polemic about the Rambam after that for a while. But the Rambam, that project alone is just phenomenal. So that means that he's not just the greatest rabbi of his own generation, he's the greatest rabbinic figure and thinker of many generations on either side of him. So that would be nachas for your family. Now, imagine the same person is also regarded as the greatest physician in the world, the greatest doctor, yeah? Uh, basically, as we'll see, you know, Salah Adin and Richard I are arguing over who's going to have the Rambam as their personal physician. There are many, many Jewish doctors throughout this period. I've lectured separately on those Jewish doctors, and it's a whole field in itself, but the Rambam is, was regarded as the greatest doctor of his day. So that's the same person as the greatest rabbi of his day. So that's starting to be some serious nachas. Now imagine the same person is also the greatest philosopher of his age, who manages to create this phenomenal synthesis between Judaism and the contemporary intellectual milieu of science, which is represented by the philosophy of Aristotle. And as I'm often said, and I'll say it again because I love saying it, is that the Christian church was not in the habit of handing out medals to Jewish philosophers living in Muslim countries. But they had time for the Rambam. The Rambam's thought you can find in Aquinas and in many other of the primary Christian thinkers of this area. He was the greatest philosophical mind of his age. So now we're at serious Nachas level. That is all in the same person. So those of you who want to go and find out more about the Rambam can, but he tells, but what's important for us in a mechanics of history sense to understand is that the Rambam achieved all of that spending most of his life on the run. 
And we can realize that. Well, he spent a number of his decades, last decades in Cairo, in Fustat and so on. But what we can see is that because the Almohads came through when he was at a very formative age of 13 and his family had to run around everywhere before he finally became settled. And yet during that time, he managed to acquire all of these incredible intellectual uh, attributes. Where are we? We're in Spain. But I want to come back to Spain because all of the developments that were happening here are starting to spill over into Spain as Spain is becoming increasingly Christian. And so they're also going, even though in Spain they say, well, we're not like the barbaric French, you know, we're civilised. We're not going to treat our Jews in that fashion. But nevertheless, we still have the same questions of the Jews. What are they doing? And why can't they see the truth of Christ? So they start intellectual... I mean, it's not quite the Spanish Inquisition yet, but the Inquisition coming out of Rome is starting to turn up the heat on Jews in these matters, as they are their own Christian heresies. And eventually it comes to a boil in the 1260s, with a very, very famous debate. Of all the three debates that are famous, this is probably the most famous, and that's the debate of 1263 in Barcelona. Now, you know that if I only have this amount of time to cover the entire period of the Rishonim, I can only talk about things that are really critically important. And Barcelona 1263 is a massively important event because it is basically the only debate that we won definitively, and the reason we won it, not because in the other debates the Christians were more correct, but in every other debate, Jews were not allowed to say anything critical of Christianity. So it's very difficult to debate against why you debate why you believe Judaism is superior to Christianity without saying anything critical of Christianity. But in 1263, a Jewish convert to Christianity called Pablo Christiani got the church and the royal authorities, James of Aragon and so on, in Spain to agree to allow him to debate the Jews. And they said, Pablo, why are you going to fare any better than anyone else? And he goes, ah, because this has been your mistake until now. You've come along and you've tried to argue the Bible with Jews. And you've tried to show them that the Bible shows them the truth of Christ. And they always turn to you and go, we don't read the Bible like that. We read it according to the Talmud. So your reaction has been to burn the Talmud. And that's not going to help anyone. What I'm going to do is I'm going to debate the Jews. And I'm going to show them that the Talmud is talking about Jesus. And they go, oh, that's brilliant. Right? Give it a go. So... They agreed to hold the debate, but they also realised that that debate was going to be pointless unless Pablo Christiani could debate someone seriously respected. And it was Pablo Christianity's misfortune, in a way, that he got to debate someone <laughs> who wasn't just respected, but was an enormous giant of Jewish thought, a person who'd already written entire commentary on the Talmud and the Torah, he got to debate against the Ramban, who uh, 
always important to distinguish between the Rambam, Moses ben Maimon, and the Rambam, Moses ben Nachmanides, in Barcelona, the giant sage of Spanish Jewry, and the Rambam, the Rambam schmeist him in three days. They called, a, they called time out. It was such a, a drubbing because the Ramban said, I'm only going to take on this debate if I'm allowed to say what I think. I'll say it respectfully, but I will say what I believe. And Pablo Cristiani was left with his arms and legs flailing. There was nowhere to go. James of Aragon himself, the king, came to the Ramban synagogue and gave him a hundred gold crowns with the famous words, I've never seen anyone so wrong debate so well. <laughs> and, and, and then he exiled him. He exiled him basically to save his life. And the Ramban went to the land of Israel, where he built the synagogue of the Ramban that stood for exactly 700 years and has now actually been restored. That is a phenomenal moment uh, in Jewish history. But to end this period, and I, and I didn't say this earlier, but it is important... Each of these timelines has 1290 as a very significant year. On the first timeline, 1290 is a significant year because it marks the end of the Crusades. So it marks the end of that shift and already, uh, in fact, in, in both sides of the Mediterranean. 1290 is significant here because the, if we talk about the Ramban, we're talking about the fact that philosophy and Talmud were not the only intellectual ideas that were pervading Europe at the time we also see the rise of Kabbalah. We see the rise of Jewish mystical thinking, trying to understand on a deep, deep, revealed mystical level, what is the relationship between God and the Jewish people? What is the relationship between the Jewish people and the rest of the world? What is the nature of the soul? What is the purpose of human beings in the world? How does creation unfold and come to be what it is from the divine one? All of these ideas within Kabbalah reach their zenith, in Spain, with the revelation in 1290 of the book of the Zohar. Now, I'm not going to get now into the discussion, which is very, very fraught, and uh, hungry apicorsim are waiting all around the side for me to say the wrong thing. Uh, there is a debate in the Jewish world at the moment about whether the Zohar was written by Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai a thousand, over uh, eleven hundred years earlier, as the, yeah, yeah, as the as 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 the Zohar claims, or whether in fact the reason we don't know about it before t late thirteenth century Spain is because it uh, was written in late thirteenth century Spain. That's not a debate we need to get into. God and the divine can be revealed at any stage in Jewish history. We don't seem to know about the Zohar before this point. But it's very difficult to imagine that even a generation as talented as 13th century Spain could have produced a document that is so profound, infinitely profound and has propelled Jewish thought and ideas and spirituality forward for the last 700, over the last 700 years. And so that is the time of the revelation of the Zohar, even with all of this tremendously difficult challenge of the fight between Christianity and Islam going on. And I'm just going to spend uh, a couple of minutes on this because it's already past the hour. And so I'm kind of, I've got to spend minus two minutes on this one. But what I was going to put on this timeline, because I want you to see it in perspective, is there is one country that is kind of related to us. And it's the country of England. And, um, 
Uh, I'm going to talk about that for a minute because British jewellery seemed to go through everything that was they went through over here, except there were they did it for the first time. There are many things that emerge in English jewellery that take off. As I'm always saying, you know, when a good anti-Semitic idea appears somewhere, other people go, oh, that's a good anti-Semitic idea. I think we'll try it over here. And the Jews of England underwent many of these things before anyone else for unique reasons. First of all, we know that whatever was happening in England before 1066, before the William the Conqueror came, the, the, the Norman ruler who came and uh, defeated the uh, you know, Anglo-Saxon, created Britain, what, or created England, whatever we or the Jews were there, William brought his Jews with him. I mean, like his luggage. You know, I'll have a few suitcases of shirts, and I've got my trousers, and I've got my kitchen roll, and I've got my Jews. And he brought those, and they quickly set about establishing themselves in communities and so on. So by the time we even get to the middle of the 12th century here, we're starting to see, the middle of the 1100s, we're starting to see dotted communities all over England who were basically more or less employed in peripheral interests to do with the royal treasury in various ways. Some of them actually amassed tremendous fortunes that belonged to the king when they died. They weren't fortunes that could be bequeathed to their descendants because the Jews were owned directly by the king. But in 1144 is the first of what's going to become a recurring tragic and awful theme right down even until the 20th century. And that, of course, is the concept of the blood libel. The idea that Jews, Jewish communities, capture Christian children and use their blood and put it in matzahs. That idea is a fiction. But the first blood libel... Actually, you know what? The first... Well, 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 no, we're not there yet. First blood, 1144. Now... And that, that subsequently got repeated throughout Europe and so on, but it happens there. We see 40 years later also uh, in Germany the first accusations of the abuse of the host and so on that Jews were stabbing the wafers in the church because they represented Christ because we're trying to, you know, relive stabbing Christ because that's all we want to do. Important to understand about English jewellery is that in towards the end of the 1100s. So just to go back for a moment to what's going on with the Crusades, the Third Crusade really was about the fact that the Arabs, uh, by the time you get to the 1180s and the end of the 1180s, had started to coalesce behind a new great ruler, probably the greatest ruler of the Arab world since Muhammad. And I don't think they've had a greater one since. And who am I talking about? Saladin. So Saladin comes to the land of Israel in the 1180s and he really, for want of a better term, kicks Crusader butt and he beats, defeats the Crusaders and he recaptures Jerusalem. Interestingly enough, in an extremely different way from the way that the first Crusaders had captured Jerusalem, uh, he basically allowed anyone... Christian, Muslim, or Jew to live in Jerusalem if they were pre prepared to observe, you know, obey the law and preserve the peace. Uh, huge figure, Salah Adin, and uh, um, would that the uh, the world had such figures uh, again today. But those victories of Salah Adin didn't go down well in Europe, 
and of course European, Christian Europe started braying for another crusade. This time it would be a third crusade. And they, but they said, if we're going to send out people on this third crusade, they need to be led by someone who's going to be at least on the level of Saladin. And of course, they had one. Everyone knew who it was going to be. It was going to be Richard, Richard the First, Richard the Lionheart. And so, but Richard the Lionheart had just been freshly crowned at Richard's coronation. The Jews of London came to Westminster Abbey in 1189 to greet the new king with gifts and they were massacred by the mob. That then set off a chain of massacres and pogroms over the next six months that culminated in the devastating and unforgettable but devastating annihilation of the Jewish community of York. 300 Jews and their rabbis who were rounded up into a building and that building was burnt to the ground. Though anybody who's been to York can still feel that and the Jewish community of York has never really ever been uh, resurrected. It, it was just, I know that there are many, many massacres that we can see. I mean, the, you've got the Rheinfleisch massacres in Germany, you've got the Akedahi, you've got massacres dotted all over those areas, but something about the massacre of York that is just appalling and uh, impactful when you see about it. There is to, all that's there really today is a plaque. And so that's important to understand about English Jewry. And, but, 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 but by the time you get to the end of here, by the time you get to 1290, 1290 is a significant year in Jewish history in England because it is in 1290 that Edward I expels all the Jews of England in the first fully done nationwide expulsion of all Jews from an entire kingdom. Jews had already undergone various minor expulsions here and there, and they were always kind of half applied or they were allowed back a little later. But here, Edward I said, no, from 1290 onwards, it's illegal to be a Jew in England. And that remained the case for over the next three and a half centuries. It's not going to be until next week, in the middle of the 17th century, that Jews are going to be allowed back into England. So that's decisive. So it is that that was followed by other expulsions elsewhere. France tried it and so on, but that was a definitive moment. So we can see these definitive moments in 1290. I'm now going to. I've now. Um, I can see the time, and I've, I've I've now left myself not that much time to do the next 200 years, which are immensely important. But I want us to stand back, if we can, at that mess and look at where. Uh, things are sitting with each other. I want us to realise that the key moments that we're going to take from are going to be the arrival of the Rif in Spain, the migration of the Rosh here, and the career of the Rambam. They are really the key standout in terms of what this project of the Rishonim is trying to do. They are trying to, it is trying to drive Jewish practice in the absence of any center towards definitive codes. That's not that those three are the only important moments. Rashi is immensely influential. The revelation of the Zohar is impactful and it's going to be impactful even as the further we go into history. The debate of the Ramban, 
All of these are important, but I just wanted to highlight the, the riff, the rush, and the rum bum because of what's going to go forward. I'm now going to rub this, and I've got a few minutes to explain the next 200 years, and we're going to try and do that. So I'm going to draw this line here. That's going to go from 1300 to 1500. Remember, we are just doing headlines. We are just doing headlines. Where I want to start here, the early 14th century, before I really, we talk about how we can summarize the 14th century, because we're going to have to summarize it greatly, but it's important to realize that here, at the beginning of the 14th century, remember that Asher bin Yechiel migrated from Germany to Spain? Well, he's just arrived in a land which has seen huge edicts against philosophy on behalf of Jewish communities. They're very worried about the influence of philosophy, the revelation of the Zohar, all sorts of halachic kind of ways of doing things developing in Spain. The Rosh arrives from Germany and he comes with his son. His son, Yaakov ben Asher, who writes a code not just like his father, a proto-code, but a real topically laid out code in four major sections covering with all aspects of Jewish life. And he calls that the tour. The Turim, the four rows, which we call the tour. And that's a very, very important document because it's written in Spain, but it's based on all the traditions that he would have received from his father and his teachers in Germany. But the 14th century overall, as anyone who studied it will know, and I have done an entire series on the 14th century that you're welcome to listen to in much, much greater detail, but the summary of the 14th century, of the 1300s, for everybody, not just the Jews, but for everybody, the summary is yuck. There are more wars, more pestilence, more persecution, more massacres, more horribleness going on for everybody in that century than just about, it's called the horrible century. And right smack in the middle of it, smack in the middle of it, is this awful event, which emerges because in around 1347, 1348, a ship arrives uh, into uh, Italy, and on that ship are rats, and on the rats are fleas, and the fleas are carrying a germ that is going to become known as the bubonic plague. And uh, sometimes it's difficult for us to understand it, but I'm giving this talk in 2020, which is, you know, and people have understood what a pandemic is, and all the grumbling that we've done, and, and the tragedy of this pandemic notwithstanding, it is very, very awful what has happened in the world in 2020, but this uh, is a plague that killed somewhere between a quarter and a third of the entire population of Europe. And they died in horrible circumstances, which is why it's called the Black Death. It was horrendous and, and, and we could talk more and more about it. Naturally, who got the blame for the Black Death? 
Christianity was incapable of providing the theological answers for why the Black Death happened, other than the fact that we've still got Jews in Europe. And so once again, it was followed by massacres of Jewish communities. But the story that I want to focus on right now is what's happening in Spain, because a lot of people think that Spanish Jewry, everything was humming along really sweetly until 1492 and they all suddenly had to go. And they don't realise, students of history will know, that the decline of Spanish Jewry was a train wreck in slow motion. And the real shock turning point happened in 1391 with the massacres in Barcelona and elsewhere. I mean, that, that they were not, not the Barcelona massacres in, right throughout Spain. In fact, they didn't start in Barcelona at all. I only said Barcelona because I was thinking about the Rambam. They started uh, actually uh, in Seville and in other places uh, right throughout Spain. And that was a massive shock because until then, Jews were able to think, well, they don't really like us ever since the Christians came back into town, but, you know, we're still safe here. And after 1391, Spain was not seen as safe. Followed not too long after by the famous events of 1412 to 1414, which is the third of the great debates that we need to know about, which of course is the debate at Tortosa. Because at Tortosa, Every rabbi and spirit, Jewish spiritual leader in Spain was summoned. And they had to be there for two years. And according to some accounts, half the rabbis that attended Tortosa cracked and converted to Christianity. Let alone the spiritual devastation they left by being away from their communities for the last two years. Some great rabbis made their name at Tortosa, rising stars like Yosef Albo and so on. But it was, once again, a, had a devastating impact on the spiritual and functional welfare of Jewish Spain. Hundreds of thousands of Jews still living in Spain. And throughout this century, we're starting to see the church crank up the pressure, crank up the pressure, and eventually, by the time you get to 1469, 1469, of course, is the shidduch of the century between Ferdinand and Isabella and the uniting of Aragon and Castile, and they decide they're going to have a new Christian Spain. And so they bring in their friend Thomas de Torquemada, who's going to go to work but on the new Christians. Now, the new Christians were Jews who had converted to Christianity under immense economic pressure because you were allowed to stay Jewish if you wanted to, but it was not going to be a very pleasant existence. Your economic and physical circumstances were going to be highly, highly curtailed. Versus, if you convert to Christianity, you're going to have access to everything that this fantastic country and economy can give you. You'll have the best houses, the best schools for your kids, the best cars. Not cars, but whatever. You're going to have the good life. It's very simple. And that carrot and stick approach demoralized Spanish Jewry to a great, great extent. But a lot of Jews were just converting on the outside, but were secretly still keeping Judaism at home. And the Inquisition was going to work on the new Christians, who clearly the old Christians didn't like, because suddenly all of this new economic competition was around. 
Eventually, by the time you get, I mean, it got worse and worse. By the time you get to the 14, to 14, the early 1490s, Torquemada is saying to Isabel and Ferdinand, you know what you have to do. So long as you've got Jews in this country, you're going to have Jews in this country. There's only one way that you're going to create this new, pure Christian Spain, and that's if you get rid of all your Jews. And the Jewish communities of Spain threw everything they had at the decree, but to no avail. Well, they got it postponed by about three months. But eventually, on Tisha B'Av of the year 1492, August the 31st, Tisha B'Av, 1492, the Alhambra decree that all Jews had to exit Spain and that it was going to be illegal after that to be a Jew in Spain. If you're a Jew in Spain, if you're in Spain after 1492, after that date, it is assumed you are a Christian. So that if there's anything about your behaviour that is inconsistent with that fact, you will be brought before the Inquisition. And hundreds of thousands of Jews tried to get out of Spain. Many went over the border into Portugal, which was only going to expel its Jews four years later. And as I've said many times, and as of course of every historian who's ever read one page of Jewish history will tell you, because it's a very, very famous fact, is that the day on the, which the Alhambra decree was in force, Tisha B'Av, 1492, <laughs> was not simply the same year, it wasn't simply the same month, it wasn't just the same week, it was the very same day that Columbus set sail for China. He set sail for China. He thought he was in India, and in fact, he was in America. And uh, needless to say, he had Jewish navigators. But he and and when Columbus when Columbus set sail, he set sail with the latest navigational and mathematical and scientific instruments that were available in the world at that time, many of which had been developed by great Jewish thinkers and scientists, notably people like Rabbi Levi ben Gershon, who I didn't even get a chance to mention, uh, who, <coughs> who, who had created the basic you know, trigonometric and astronomic charts for working out where you are when you're going off the planet. Into, into new areas. Similarly, just after in the new age of exploration, we're going to get people like Avram Zakut. It is no coincidence, who helped Magellan and so on, it is no coincidence that, those, that this period here produces two Jewish thinkers who were also great in Jewish scholarship as well, but who had made such profound contributions to the navigational science that's going to lead to the entire transformation of the world have craters on the moon named after them. Rabbi Levi's crater and a crater called Zagut. And I can tell you, if there's ever going to be a Jewish colony on the moon, it's going to be centered around those two craters, which are kind of like near each other, Rabbi Levi's crater and Zagut. It's a good crater. I mean, it's even got a Jewish kind of sounding term. Right. That was a tremendous tragedy that the 700-year community of Spain came crashing down overnight. Hundreds of thousands of Jews spilling out 
of the Sephardic world and influencing communities everywhere. One child who managed to get out with his family, and because <laughs> it wasn't easy to go places from Spain at the end of the 15th century. It was very dangerous. And you couldn't just go anywhere. You had to get somewhere. And while one door closes, another door opens. And I'm not talking about America, because America is still a Bach at this stage. I'm talking about the fact that the Ottoman Empire, now over the course of this last century, the Ottoman Empire has been on the rise. In 1453, they have managed to capture Constantinople and put an end to the Byzantine Empire. Remember the Byzantines from last week? Their thousand-year empire ended by the Ottomans, arising in here. And the Ottoman Empire turns around and they go, well, if Spain doesn't want their Jews, we'll have them. We don't have a problem with Jews. In fact, we're trying to develop a whole range of economic and uh, different circumstances going on in the Ottoman Empire. We know where to put the Jews. We'll help them. They even sent ships to bring Jews into the Ottoman Empire. And the Ottoman Empire controlled the land of Israel. And that's a very, very important fact for what's going to happen next. One child who manages to escape from Spain as a result of the expulsion with his family and goes to the Balkans and grows up in places like Adrianople and so on, which are in the Ottoman Empire, was, of course, the young Yosef Karo. Yosef Karo was four years old when he left with his parents after the Alhambra decree. Yosef Karo grew up to become a great scholar. And he sat and took the tour, which had been compiled in the early 1300s. And he used the tour's structure to write a commentary on it that would adapt the tour to become effectively a universal document of Jewish law for everyone. And in order to do that, on every single decision, he took the three great codes of the Middle Ages, of the Rishonim. He took the Rif, he took the Rosh, and he took the Rambam. He took the Rif from North Africa and Spain. He took the Rosh from Germany. He took the Rambam from Spain, North Africa, Israel, Egypt, everywhere. And he welded them together, basically went with two out of three on any halachic topic, into the last great universally accepted synthesis of Jewish law, which he called Shulchan Aruch. That is the demarcation of the end of the period of the Rishonim, because their synthesis in the Shulchan Aruch launches us into the next phase which is the last 500 years of Jewish history till today, the period of the Acharonim. That may have finished, may not have. We'll discuss that next week. And the amazing thing, one of the amazing things that's not necessarily well known about Yosef Karo is that he's doing this in the early, or the first decades of the 1500s. What massive, enormous technological revolution has just happened at the end of the 1500s? The rise of printing. 
Johannes Gutenberg over there in Germany, peddling around in his back shed, creates the first, you know, movable type printing press. And people go, oh, well, that's nice. But it's enormous. It fundamentally changes the whole nature of knowledge and launches the information age, the shadow we are still in. Rather than an individual textbook being written out by hand in a manuscript, now there's a book, you put it on the plates. Kerching, there's a copy. Kerching, there's another copy. Kerching, there's another copy. And that revolutionizes everything because knowledge becomes democratized and accessible, just as we saw in our own generation with the rise of the internet. It's no less a transformation. It is in fact, of course, the transformation, the technological transformation that sits behind what's going to happen here with Luther and so on and the whole breakdown of the Catholic ch of the church that's going to wobble in the Reformation. But Yosef Karo saw the Shulchan Aruch printed in his own lifetime. He saw a copy of the Shulchan Aruch printed in front of him. And yet he came from really from that world to his massively important transitional figure, Yosef Karo. And the rise of printing had also had many other ramifications. If we were to go back to Western Europe at this age and we were to look at a figure, well, I mean, <laughs> this age, you're now deep in what we now call, the, we're now deep in what we now call the Renaissance. So there are many ways in which uh, enlightened people so, and, and intellectual figures across Europe are starting to look back at Jewish texts and say, well, maybe there's something in here that's useful for the world. A figure like Johannes Reuchlin, not Jewish, who was refused to sign a ban on the Talmud in Europe because obviously with the rise of printing and wanting to print the Talmud, huge discussions as to whether the church and the authorities were going to allow that. Reuchlin's famous statement of, I won't sign to ban a book that I haven't read, is a classic expression of humanism emerging from the Renaissance. So the world is changing fundamentally. It's also the Renaissance, it's the Renaissance and it's also, of course, as I mentioned, the age of exploration. The world is now suddenly bigger than we ever realized it was and there are a whole lot of different things that are going to happen that is the launch pad so although on the one hand the expulsion of the jews from spain was an immense tragedy for the jews of spain it propels the world as well as the jewish people forward into the next phenomenal continuum of history that is going to lead to our event the world's eventual redemption uh, as the Jewish people continue to uh, symbolize the presence of God and the divine in the world. Uh, I believe that I have covered everything. It is now uh, exactly coming up to 9.30. No doubt tonight I'm going to think of things uh, that I have uh, failed to mention, and I'm going to be very upset by that. But if we understand the fundamental mechanics of the period of the Rishonim, what are we deriving from? Well, we're deriving from it that we have moved in a huge arc from 1000 to 1500, from the golden age of Spain to the expulsion of Spanish Jewry. And what we've seen through all of the misery and all of the pain and all of the difficulties that European Jewry went through, they still managed to produce some of the great spiritual contributions of world culture. They produced the Rambam, they produced the Zohar, they produced the Chuchanaruch and Rashi. 
and numerous others that I haven't even uh, had uh, really the opportunity to talk about uh, today. So thank you for listening to that. I once again remind us that we are only looking at headlines. And I also once again remind us that this course is being sponsored by Chabad South Africa and Dominion Shul in Melbourne, the Shul of Love. And I'm hoping that uh, I will see you all uh, next week because next week is very exciting. We're doing the last 500 years and you'll all want to hear uh, what uh, contentious things I have to say about that. So take care and, uh, and have, a, have a good evening.